Previously, on Saving Apollo 13. The odds are damned long, but we are damned good. No matter what else we do, I think we're going to have to go around the moon. So it's agreed. At 79 hours and 27 minutes, there will be an 850 foot per second burn for four and a half minutes. If all goes well, Apollo 13 will be home by Friday afternoon. Jim, this is our last chance to get these shots. We've come all the way out here. Don't you think they're going to want us to bring back some pictures? Lovell says, If we don't get home, you'll never get those pictures developed. This is Saving Apollo 13. The incredible story of NASA's Apollo 13 mission. The spacecraft that failed en route to the moon and the feats of human ingenuity that saved the lives of the three men aboard. Can a non-tested engine get three stranded astronauts home? And on the long journey back to Earth, how do you keep them alive when their air is slowly turning to poison? I'm Sean Brady. Forensic Engineer, and this is Episode 4, The Age of Aquarius. Now look it, let's get the camera squared away and let's get all set to burn. We're not going to hack it with a splash town at 152 hours. Lovell watches as the men slowly stow their cameras and get to work. Over the next hour they prep for the burn. Brand reads up power-up instructions and the LEMS systems are brought online. And eventually, they're ready. Lovell looks at Hayes and gives a thumbs up, and he looks at Swaggart and does the same. Hayes announces, 10 minutes to burn. Then 8 minutes to burn. Then 4 minutes to burn. Then Brand comes online. Jim, you are go for the burn. Go for the burn. And Lovell replies, Roger, I understand, we are go for the burn. Bran says, two minutes and 40 seconds on my mark. And then he says, mark. And the computer's clock is counting down. And down and down, and it hits zero, and the three men feel the lem come to life beneath them. And Lovell says they're burning at 40%. Houston copies they're seeing the same. And then 15 seconds later, they're burning at 100%. And Houston says through loud static, Aquarius Houston, you're looking good. And then moments later they say, Aquarius, you're still looking good at two minutes. And minute after minute, Houston keeps checking in, telling them they're go. And at three minutes, Brand says, Aquarius, ten seconds to go. He continues to count them down. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And Lovell calls, shutdown. Brand says, Roger, shutdown. Good burn, Aquarius. Lovell knows that right now, there's a call being made to Mel Richmond on the USS Iwo Jima in the Pacific, telling them where to pick them up. And by Houston's calculations, that will be 600 miles southeast of American Samoa on Friday morning, or to be precise, 142 hours and 54 minutes into the mission. But this is some 60 hours away. And over the next while, Lovell and Swaggart and Hayes put the ship 
in its passive thermal role, the PTC. This means that rather than it falling back to Earth in a static position, they set the ship rotating about itself in what's called the barbecue roll. So as it moves towards the Earth, this rotation exposes all its sides to the sun, keeping all sides at a constant temperature. Now, if they didn't do this, the side of the spacecraft facing the sun would fry and the other side would freeze, and both situations could wreck the ship. And this barbecue roll prevents it. The crew work on all this for two hours. Then they power down the limb. They start switching everything off to satisfy Bill Peters' plan. So it's going to be dark and it's going to get cold. And now they are well and truly exhausted. And Houston sends up a sleep plan. His is sent off to sleep first and Lovell and Swaggart stay up to watch Aquarius. And despite the fact the temperature is dropping in Aquarius, Lovell finds he can drift off to sleep. He stands floating in front of the instrument panel and he just closes his eyes and he drifts off. And finally the Capcom comes back on calm. It's Jack Lausma, he's just come back on shift. And he says, Aquarius Houston? And Lovell replies sleepily, hmm, yeah, Aquarius here. Lausma says, it's about time for you guys to get to bed and get Fred up. Roger says Lovell and adds, looking forward to it. Lausma tells them to take three hours and be back at 85 hours and 25 minutes. And Lovell can't wait to sleep. So he pushes away from the instrument panel towards the back of the limb and he floats up through the tunnel into Odyssey. And now it's his turn to be really shocked by how cold it is. Lovell reckons it's about zero degrees Celsius or maybe a little higher, three or four degrees, but it's still freezing. Lovell looks at his in his light sleeping bag in the gloom, surrounded by the grey walls of the command module. The air is clammy because of the moisture they're breathing out, and this moisture is already starting to condense on the instrument panels. His is sound asleep, and around him is a thin layer of warm air. Because there's no gravity, there's no convection, so the warm air from Hayes' body isn't leaving him. As long as Hayes stays perfectly still, it cocoons his body giving him warmer than he should have been in the cold, mechanical space. Lovell shakes Hayes awake, helps him groggily out of his sleeping bag and sends him down into the limb. Then Lovell climbs into his own couch and curls his arms around himself. He tries not to think about the cold. Then a few minutes later, Swaggart floats up into the command module and gets into his couch and tries to get comfortable. Lovell closes his eyes and turns towards the bulkhead and thinks about their situation. They're not even 15,000 miles from the moon yet and they're moving at less than 3,000 miles an hour. And they are slowing down. The moon's gravity is still close enough to sap speed from them. And this will continue for about another 25,000 miles. Then at that point, they'll be close enough for the Earth to exert its gravitational pull on them and they'll slowly speed back up again. At that point, Lovell knows he'll feel a little more comfortable. But now, as he lies there, staring at the bulkhead, he's still 225,000 miles from home. But exhaustion creeps up on him, and as the cocoon of warm air begins to build up around his body, he drifts off to sleep. While the command module is Jack Swaggart's ship, the LEM is Fred Hayes's. And with Lovell and Swaggart asleep, Hayes has got the LEM all to himself. 
and although it's powered down and dark and cold, he feels pride. Pride that this little ship, this little ship that had been designed to do something very different from what it's doing now, is saving their lives. And as far as Fred Hayes is concerned, it's his job to keep it alive and functioning. And that's exactly what he's planning to do. The funny thing is that Hayes never thought he'd end up in space. He'd never even set out to be a pilot, let alone a test pilot. He'd been 18 years old, with two years of college behind him. He'd never flown in a plane, and he'd never even been in one. So unlike most test pilots who lived and breathed flying, he'd been different. The Korean War had come around, he'd wanted to enlist and serve, and the only programme that led to a commission was the Naval Aviation Cadet Programme. So he ended up flying by accident, but when he did, he loved it. But when he got into NASA, he knew he was late into the game, and he felt his chances of actually getting on a flight were slim. So instead of worrying about it, he just threw himself into getting his head around the hardware. Now at the time, NASA was assigning astronauts to the contractors building the equipment for the Apollo mission. And Fred Hayes found himself assigned to Grumman, who were building the LEM. So not only was he trained as a LEM pilot, Fred Hayes was sort of like a company pilot. He knew all about the insides of this craft. He knew what its relays looked like. He knew the pins on the electrical connectors and which systems they went to. He spent two years working on this machine. He knew it inside and out. So he's happy and he likes being in charge. For the first time since the explosion, he feels like he's in control. When he signed on the comm, he said to Jack Lausma, I'll tell you, this Aquarius has really been a winner. Now he looks out the window into darkness and watches the moon receding. Houston Aquarius, he says, go Fred. He says, I'm looking back at the left-hand corner of the moon. I can barely make out the foothills of the Framura Formation. We never did get to see it when we were in there close. And Lausma tells him how far away from the moon they are and how fast they're going. And then Fred Hayes says, When this flight is over, we'll be able to figure out what a limb can do. If it had a heat shield, I'd say bring it home. And Lausma says, Well, at least you give the folks at home a good look at the inside of the ship Monday night. That was a good show you guys put on. And Hayes says it would have been an even better one about 10 minutes later. And Lausma says, yes, things sure turn to worms in a hurry there after that. Hayes pushes back from the panel to the bulkhead and says, and just for your information, Jack, I'm going to pass the time by tearing into some beef and gravy and other assorted goodies. And Lausma plays along. I presume you're doing this with the full permission of the commander? And Hayes smiles and says, And at this very moment, just who do you think the commander is? And this banter goes on, and then Lausma very casually asks Hayes to do something. He says, And Fred, sometime when you're not too busy chewing on that beef, how about telling us what the CO2 reads? So Hayes folds up his packet of roast beef and floats over to the carbon dioxide gauge. This is the gauge that tells him the level of carbon dioxide in the lamb. And he's shocked by what he sees. He has to make an effort to collect himself before he replies to Houston. And when he speaks, he does so very evenly, like it's the most normal thing in the world. Okay, I'm reading 13 on the gauge. And just to be sure, he adds, yeah, 13. And Lausma replies just as evenly back to him. All right, that's pretty much what we've got here. 
which is really reassuring because this gauge reading is serious trouble. Now, oxygen isn't the problem in getting the men home, but there's a problem with carbon dioxide. As the men exhale, they're slowly filling up their ship with carbon dioxide. And if this gas builds up too high, it will kill them. Now, the way boat craft deal with carbon dioxide is with lithium hydroxide canisters. And these canisters have to be changed when they get saturated. And the gauge is showing here is a reading of 13. Now, a healthy ship should be around 3, and the crew are told to change out the canisters when it rises to 7. And now it's nearly twice that. And when this gauge hits 15, this means that the canisters are saturated. They're no longer cleaning the air. And from that point forwards, Hayes knows the crew will start suffering from CO2 poisoning. They'll get lightheaded, they'll be disorientated, they'll be nauseous. Then they'll die. Now this reading of 13 is a big surprise for Hayes because he'd ran the numbers and the lithium hydroxide canister should not be saturated yet. But then he realises he's wrong. He's based his calculations on a crew of two in the LEM. Which is reasonable because he always does his calculations based on himself and Jim Lovell in the LEM. Because the LEM is only ever intended to support two people. So he'd forgotten Jack Swaggart out of habit. Now the command module has canisters but they're square shaped. They're cubes. The LEM can only take round cartridges. So they can't use the command module canisters. But at least Lausma had said that Mission Control were reading the same value of 13. They must have a plan. And they certainly did. Because while this CO2 value of 13 was a big surprise for Fred Hayes, it was not a surprise for one man in NASA. And that man was Ed Smiley. Ever since the explosion in the service module, Smiley and his team had been building a weird-looking device. And on Wednesday morning, he'd taken his device and arrived at the mission control building. He'd walked through the halls while people stared in confusion at what he was carrying. Then he'd taken the lift to level 3 and the doors had admitted him to mission control. And what he'd built was the most curious thing. It was the most un-NASA piece of equipment to ever appear in mission control. It was built from a flight plan cover and hoses and duct tape and a command module lithium hydroxide canister. Smiley's device was built using only materials they already had on board the two spacecraft. And this device will solve the CO2 problem by making it possible to use the cubic command module lithium hydroxide canisters in the LEM. They can use the canisters they already had on board to make sure they continue to have breathable air. So Hayes asks if he needs to start going up into Odyssey to collect materials for the device, and Lausmas says no. Let Lovell and Swaggart sleep a little longer. But at this point, Lovell reappears. He floats down through the tunnel and back into the LEM. But he still looks tired and dazed from sleep. Hayes says, you're back awful early. And Lovell says, it's too cold up there, Fredo. Then Lovell yawns and puts on his headset. Hello, Houston Aquarius. This is Lovell here, who's got the duty again. Lausma asks if Swaggart is with him, and Lovell says no, he's still sleeping. Because somehow, despite the cold, Swaggart has managed to get some sleep. So Lausma says, okay, as soon as he gets up, I'd suggest we go ahead and make a couple of lithium hydroxide canisters. It's going to take all three sets of hands, I think. 
but then Swagger does appear, the noise has woken him. At around the same time, Joe Kerwin relieves Lausma as Capcom, and for the next hour, the crew go hunting for the materials they need to build Smiley's device. And the list is odd. They need a pair of scissors, they need two of the command modules, lithium hydroxide canisters, they need a roll of duct tape, and one of the stiff pages of the LEM procedures. They need to get the thermal undergarments that Hayes and Lovell would have worn on the lunar surface. But they aren't after the water-cooled undergarments, they're after the plastic bag they're in. It's the plastic bag that's the important bit. And when they have all this together, Kerwin starts reading up Ed Smiley's procedures on what they have to build. And while it may have been reasonably straightforward to build on the ground, it's a hell of a lot more difficult in the weightlessness of space. And part of the problem is it's hard to work out what the ground really mean with these unrehearsed procedures. Like when Kerwin talks about the top of the canister, they have to actually define which end of it is the top. And when it comes to the duct tape, Kerwin says they need three feet of it. And Lovell wonders how they're going to measure out three feet when Kerwin just adds, make it an arm's length. And then they have to tape the bag from the thermal undergarments onto the canister with the page of the LEM procedures inside it. But they work away, and although it takes them an hour to get the first canister built, when they're done, they're strangely proud of it. And what they have now is a square lithium hydroxide canister with one of their spare hoses attached to it, with a plastic bag over it and it duct taped to the canister. And under the plastic is the stiff page from the flight plan. And the way it works is they connect the hose to the air inlet in the LEM, which in turn draws air through the hose, which in turn draws air through the cubic command module canister, which then scrubs the CO2 from the air. So the duct tape and the plastic bag are just a very neat way to connect the hose to the cubic canister. But, and this is the really clever bit, they need the stiff card of the manual to make all this work. Why? Well, without it, air would be drawn in through the hose, which would then suck in and collapse the plastic bag around the canister. And this would block the airflow. So this stiff flight manual page essentially acts as an arch to prevent the bag collapsing. Finally, to plug the unused hole in the canister, they use a piece of cloth. And Swaggart says over the comm, OK, our do-it-yourself lithium hydroxide canister is complete. And Kerwin says, OK, see if air is flowing through it. So Swaggart presses his ear to the canister and he can hear air being drawn into the vent slats. He reports this and the three men look towards the instrument panel. The needle on the CO2 scale is still sitting on 13. They watch. And it's so slow at first, like it isn't even moving. But then ever so slowly the needle begins to fall. First to 11.5 and then 11 and then below. This crazy little brainchild of Ed Smiley is working. And the crew now feel that if NASA is willing to throw plastic bags and pages of a flight manual into the fight to save them, if NASA is willing to think this far outside the box, then maybe they may just get through this. In fact, Fred Hayes is so pleased with himself, he announces he's going to finish his roast beef. But now, with the CO2 problem solved, Houston tells the astronauts again that the lack of sleep is still a real problem. The flight surgeons are comfortable that Hayes has done okay, he's had some sleep, but the other two astronauts are another story. Deke Slayton, who offered Jim Lovell his astronaut's job so many years ago, orders Lovell and Swaggart back to bed. And they go back to bed, which leaves Fred Hayes again 
back in charge of his ship. And it doesn't take long for the Capcom Vance Brand to come back on the comm with bad news. Brand says, Just wanted to let you know that at the moment you're pretty much right in the middle of the fairway, right around 6.5 degrees. And he pauses, and here's waits for the butt, and it comes. We are getting a little drift though, and if we don't correct it, you're going to shallow out of the corridor. Now this means they are drifting off course, off their trajectory, and if this continues, they're going to miss their re-entry target and not make it back home. So in order to successfully re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, they have to be on a trajectory that will put them on the right re-entry angle once they reach Earth. And this is a pretty tight re-entry angle to achieve, between 5.3 and 7.7 degrees. If they come in shallower than 5.3, they'll skip back out of the atmosphere and they won't re-enter. They'll bounce back into space and won't get home. But if they come in steeper than 7.7, they'll re-enter too fast and the G-forces will be so high that it'll probably crush the crew before they hit the water. So they need to be at an angle between 5.3 and 7.7. And what Vance Brand is telling Fred Hayes is that their angle is shallowing. And if it keeps shallowing, they're going to skip out of the atmosphere and not get home. So Hayes says, all right, what do we want to do about that? And Brand says, what we're thinking about is a mid-course burn at 104 hours. Then he adds, just a little one, about 7 feet per second. Hayes says that sounds good. Then Brand says, only complication is that we're also looking at your supercritical helium tank pressure. And we do expect it to blow. We don't know exactly what time it will happen, maybe about 105 hours or so. Even if it goes early, we figure we've got plenty of blowdown capacity, so we'll probably be alright. And to all this, Fred Hayes simply says, that sounds okay too. But wow, now Fred Hayes knows that everything really isn't okay. The very fact that Houston is considering some sort of burn to correct their course means that they really need to correct it because the LEM isn't designed for this kind of firing and stopping and firing again. The LEM's descent engine is designed to fire and take them down to the surface of the moon, and that is it. They'd use a different engine, the ascent engine, to leave the moon's surface. So here is their engine, designed to be fired once, and they are firing it many times. They've already fired it after the explosion to get themselves back on a free return trajectory, and then they'd fired it for the PC plus two burn, and now Houston wants them to fire it again. And the problem Brand is referring to, the helium problem, is a tricky one, and it's a problem they can do nothing about. It relates to how the engine is designed to work. So in order to force fuel into the LEM's combustion chamber, they use helium, and this helium is stored in the supercritical helium tank. But helium expands quickly, and the pressure in this tank increases over time. Now the tank is designed to cope with a much higher pressure than 80 pounds per square inch. It's designed to cope with 1800 pounds per square inch. Now this is a huge margin, but Brand is just after telling Hayes that at 105 hours into the mission, pressure in the tank is going to reach this value, and the tank will fail. Now it won't explode because there's a disc included in the gas line that will burst and vent the gas out into space to ensure it fails in a safe manner. So that isn't the problem. The tank fails in a controlled manner, vents the helium into space, and all is well. But the problem is that once this happens, they can't really fire the engine again. So once the disc bursts, the engine is as good as dead, and they can't make significant course corrections from that point onwards. 
So if they need to correct their trajectory, which Brand says they do, they need to do it before the disc bursts and they lose their engine. And all of this is news to Hayes, because with the ship powered down, he isn't able to monitor these pressures in the fuel lines. The ground are doing that, and he isn't monitoring their trajectory because the guidance computer is powered down too. So Hayes now knows that at some point before this disc bursts, Houston is going to make them do a burn to get them back on track. And they need to do this before they lose their engine. Then after that, they need to keep their fingers crossed that they won't have to do any more major corrections because they won't have an engine to do it. But Hayes isn't going to talk about this over the open calm. So he says nothing, and then he drifts towards the back of the LEM where the crew have a tape player and music tapes. Now, the original plan was that after they'd finished on the moon, they were going to entertain themselves on the way home by playing these tapes. And now Hayes thinks, to hell with worrying about stuff he can't do much about. So he picks up a tape and he puts it in the player. The song not only fills the limb, but it's also picked up by the comlink, and they hear it in mission control. The music plays, and Fred Hayes is happy. Then Brand calls over the comm. Well, since you're in such a good mood, let me make it better. Somebody just handed me the latest consumable status report, and it looks like you're only using between 11 and 12 amps an hour. That's a couple amps below what the Telmu guys projected, so you look real good. And then Brand tells them even more good news. According to our little tracking plot here, you're now about 44,000 miles out from the moon. Fido tells me that means we're in the Earth's sphere of influence and starting to accelerate. The Earth is now pulling them home and Hayes says, I thought it was about time we crossed. Roger says Brand and Hayes says we're on our way home and Brand says that you are. And Hayes really is happy now. The tape recorder keeps playing and it's floating in the air behind him and he drifts over to look out the window back towards the moon. The ship shudders and it reminds Hayes of Monday night's explosion. He has to brace himself against the bulkhead and he knows this is another explosion but it hasn't come from above him in the command or service module it's come from beneath his feet. It's come from the LEM. Somewhere in the LEM there's been an explosion. His mind races and his first thought is the helium disc. It's burst early. But it hadn't felt like a burst disc. This was different. So he looks out the window and he's shocked. The LEM is venting something. Hayes sees a dense cloud of snowflakes coming up from the descent stage of the LEM. Whatever it is, it isn't helium. This isn't a burst disc. He forces himself to calm down and goes on calm. Okay Vance, I just heard a little thump, sounded like down on the descent stage, and I saw a new shower of snowflakes come up that looked like they were emitted from down that way. I wonder what the supercritical helium pressures look like now. And Brand responds calmly, but Hayes knows Vance is about as calm as he is. Another explosion is not what they need now. And Brand comes back on calm, and all he can offer is that it wasn't the helium. That's all. Hayes knows that the control console must have told Brand that the helium pressure was unchanged. So it isn't a burst disc. And the fact that Brand doesn't offer another explanation means he, nor anyone else in Mission Control, has any idea what caused the explosion. 
because if they did, they'd have told him. All Fred Hayes can do is accept it, give Houston time to figure out what the bang was and hope it wasn't anything bad. And all the time, floating in the cabin, the tape recorder turns and plays, and it doesn't seem quite so entertaining anymore. This was Saving Apollo 13. If you liked the show, I'd love if you took the time to tell a friend about it. This show was produced by forensic engineering firm Brady Haywood. Brady Haywood specializes in forensic engineering and investigating the causes of failures. For more information, head to the website bradyhaywood.com.au. This show was written and narrated by me, Sean Brady. It was produced in partnership with the team at Waveland Creative, who helped write, edit and mix the show. Special thanks to everyone who reviewed my scripts, fact-checked and given valuable feedback while producing this podcast. And one last thing. If you've got a complicated idea that you want to communicate with your employees or customers, then making a podcast like this is a really great way to get your message across. And I really recommend Waveland Creative, who helped me produce this show. To talk to the team at Waveland about your idea, head to the website waveland.fm. There's a link in this episode's show notes.